Welcome to today's podcast. Today, I've got a special guest. I've got Wendy Hart from Grant Thornton. Now, Wendy's been the corporate finance partner here in the Thames Valley for, well, as long as I've known her, and she's got a, a lot of experience under her belt. I'll let Wendy introduce herself. Welcome to the Exit Insights podcast, Wendy. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, should I go introduce myself? So yes, I've been a corporate finance partner at Grant Thornton for 22 years, sadly. And um, in that time, I've focused on transacting in the mid-market. So typically businesses turning over between sort of five and 50 million and therefore deal sizes sort of sort of 10 to 70 or 80 is kind of where I focused. Um, and all sorts of transaction types, a lot of disposal work, a um, bit of acquisition work and, and some MBOs and MBIs in the mix. That's, well, exactly the sweet spot of our audience, I think. So perfect sort of person we should be talking to. 22 years, I'm guessing you've uh, had a fair bit of experience over that time, the good, the bad, the indifferent. Um, I, I'll bet you've got some stories to tell. So why don't we start with, you know, let's start with the easy stuff and go from, from your experience, what are the characteristics of a business that, that's wanting to exit, they're ready to exit, they come to you, a corporate finance person and go, hey, look, I want to sell my business. Can you help me? What does good look like, for example? Okay, that's a really good question. So so good good looks like from the point of view of the actual business characteristics, I would say, you know, when I kind of leave the room whooping, it's a business that's got a decent EBITDA, so sort of over a million of EBITDA, so they've got some scale. Um, in a in a growing market, so we can see what the market opportunity is quite clearly with a, a decent management team um, that can take the business forward um, and and with a decent um, a decent set of financial data. So um, they have got the capacity to produce decent management accounts to analyze the data in a in a fair degree of detail um, and, and with a clear plan. A, a business that knows where it's going and, and what it's trying to achieve in terms of its objectives. Yeah. And when you say management team, I assume you mean a management team that are going to be remain with the business post-transaction. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's sort of two levels of management team um, that, that, that we look for. If you've got a management team that can run the business day to day, that has the customer relationships, that you know, understands the operations and is a safe pair of hands, that's kind of one level of management in order to then have the opportunity or the option to go to private equity and, and, and lots of exits now are to private equity, then you kind of need a level above that in terms of a management team that's got the capacity at least to drive the strategy as well. Yeah. So, so you know, in, in an ideal world, you'd have you'd have a, a CEO in waiting at least that, that, that's capable of kind of really having some vision for the business as well as just running it. Yeah, so ideally not involved in the operation. So your traditional founders who, who get themselves out of the operational role and into a strategy and directional role moving forward. Um, and we need people, we need that skill set yeah. to remain in the business. And from the finance side, yeah, absolutely. finance side, what do we need? We, we're talking financial controller or FD level of expertise in the business. It, it depends on the business, to be honest. It depends. It depends. Well, it depends on two things. It depends on the business. It depends on the complexity of the financials, and and then it also depends on what the aspiration is in terms of sort of deal type. So again, if you're looking to have private equity as an option, at least, then you need somebody probably who's more of an FD than an FC. But but we've run all sorts of deals with with just a really competent FC. It's really about being able to answer the financial questions when they get asked quickly and efficiently. 
Yeah, and that's where you guys help, I, I guess, by by getting them prepared ahead of time, knowing what sort of financial questions are, are going to be asked during the due diligence process. You can anticipate it all and make sure that they're in place well ahead of time. Yeah, so so that's one of the things that we do in preparation for going to market is is effectively have um, have a, a data room. I mean, we don't always set the data room up in advance, but we certainly have the content for it up and ready to go. And the reason for that is, is that, that momentum is really important to deal success. And so if every time somebody asks a question, you have to go away and produce the data, then it, it slows things down. So what we try and do is have the guts of what we know is going to be asked for ready, keeping it updated month on month as we go through. Um, and then we're in a position to answer questions really quickly and sharply, which which leaves us and the clients in control of the process and not, you know, other people yeah. hanging around waiting for stuff. I imagine that if, if the, there's a slow response to providing the data, that that will also remove some of the confidence from the buyer in that if the data is not available, the information is not available, you know, what have they been doing? What else is yeah, ready? Absolutely. And, and, is, and is this going to be difficult and complicated and do we really need this in our lives type type thinking so yeah there's kind of a trust thing and there's kind of a um, professionalism thing which which kind of begs questions but 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 from the client's perspective the biggest thing is is that momentum allows you to keep control and if you don't have the answers to questions you lose momentum and, and you know there will then be some people that will drop out of the process because it just you know just gets too painful and I have known that happen yeah so momentum is a big uh, plus attribute, keeping things moving for a, a, a you know a good transaction. Absolutely, it it just means that you know, as I say, if you've got multiple bidders, which is where you really want to be, you know, you're in control of that process. Whereas if one bidder asks for a question you can't answer, you know, you, it gets harder and harder to keep everybody in the same place in a process. So it's really important to be. Absolutely ready. And the other thing about that is, and this is a really interesting point, is that is that if you've done that, if you've really understood the data and you've analysed it and you've worked out what you think somebody needs to understand about your business and you've given them that, you are far better placed to go, actually, I don't think you need that. I know you're asking for it, but we don't think you need it. And, and we do do that in diligence processes. We go, no, you've had this. That answers the question. We don't think you need what you're now asking for. Yeah, well, that's really driving the process on your terms, which is something that we're big fans for. Of you get prepared in advance, you can control the process. You're on the front foot rather than the back foot. You're more likely to achieve a better better outcome, whether that be you know, the legacy you want to leave behind or maximising the the value you receive. Exactly. Yeah. Which kind of leads us nicely on. Hey, look, here's the the things you need in place. You need a good management team. You need to understand your business model. You need the you know, the, the good growing um, financials. What else do you see that um, businesses have in place that increase the valuation? What, what are the, the influences there? Okay, so so valuation, fundamentally, I mean, most businesses are valued on an EBITDA multiple. I mean, there are exceptions, but, but most businesses are valued on EBITDA multiple. So there's two elements to, to a valuation equation. There's the um, there's the EBITDA, and you can obviously do things to influence your sort of adjusted EBITDA, um, but they're relatively straightforward. You know, there's only so much you can do. The, the thing that, that people don't tend to pay must, enough attention to in the lead up to a transaction is the multiple. Um, and, and, and clearly, you know, that, that has a, a, a significant impact. If you're looking at a business with over a million 
pounds of EBITDA, then then however you look at it, every turn of the multiple gives them an extra million pounds in their in their pocket. So so that's the thing that people don't focus on. And the way to think about it is um, in terms of what what I call value drivers. So what what are the things that an acquirer that the market is going to really like about the business? What are the things that are going to make them want it more? And what are the things that are value detractors? What are the things that are going to make it less attractive in the marketplace? Um, and and so that leads you to a focus on things like the balance of recurring versus non-recurring revenues in a business, for example. Um, the significance of individual customer relationships and any issues of customer concentration, which is a detractor typically. Um, supply chain risk, um, uh, the way the business is profiled in, in, in the market. So, you know, if, if it's a business that's recognised and known by the market to be something that's ambitious and driving and, you know, on awards um, tickets and, 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 and constantly in the press, then, then that kind of creates a, a, a predisposition to believe it's a quality asset. So there's a, there's a whole raft of things that you should look at um, with a view to kind of pushing the multiple up um, because every turn of the multiple makes a very significant difference to the price. Yeah. So some of these things that will influence the multiple already sit on your balance sheet, but there's some things that uh, don't sit on your balance sheet, and I guess they're typically lumped into goodwill. But the, the first one you mentioned is building a profile, a brand, a reputation, you know, it's something that makes you stand out in the marketplace that you're known for and you have a reputation for. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that kind of clarity of, I mean, I hate the word purpose in the context of businesses, but that clarity of purpose, what, what's the business for? Where does it sit? Um, where's it going? What it helps, helps acquirers and investors really define um, where it fits into their strategy. And, and one thing that's, that's become very much clearer over the, over the last few years, not just, not just in, in, the, in the last year or so, is, is that acquirers and investors know what they want. They, they don't kind of, you know, they're not particularly opportunistic. They're quite strategic. So they are looking for certain characteristics in certain markets. And so that kind of clarity of business plan and the way that a business articulates what it is and who, and who it does it for is, is increasingly important because people don't want sort of portmanteau businesses or a bit of this and a bit of that. If they want, if they want to, I don't know, if, if they want let's talk IT because I know IT really well if, if, if they want a software business that focuses on the insurance vertical that's what they'll go and look for yeah. if they want a networking services business that's what they'll go and look for and if you don't say the right things in the right way they won't find you let alone attach a high valuation to you so it's about being really focused in terms of articulating what your business does and who it does it for yeah, and, you, and you've raised a really interesting point there that uh, is going to lead us somewhere, I'm sure, is that you, you mentioned your market is the, the 5 to 50 million bracket. You know, I, I, I call that the mid-tier bracket. But that feels like there's a change in the way businesses are valued and acquired in that segment as opposed to the up to 5 million segment and uh, who they're selling to and who their buyers are. I, th- I, think, I think that's right. So it, it, it's... You know, it used to be the case, and this is this is probably a bit brutal, and, and it's not it's not going to be universally true, by the way. But it used to be the case that 
almost any business was saleable. You know, you might get a really low multiple for it, but but somebody somewhere would snap it up at a price. I think the market has become sufficiently strategic that there are businesses which are sadly unsaleable. They're, they're either too messy, too complicated, too lacking in clarity, too focused on a on a historic market that's just declining and, and nobody really wants to invest in. So or, or just too small because you know a deal has a cost attached to it in terms of fees and hassle and time and and there's kind of you know diminishing returns the smaller a deal is i mean that's just that's just received wisdom in in, in my world so yes i think i think it is now true that that for sub let's say and 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 this will not be true for everybody but but for most businesses that are sub five million revenue you know sub I don't know, 750 million, 750k of EBITDA, they are probably going to find the disposal process quite difficult. Um, what, what tends to happen in that part of the market is you get a lot more um, peer-to-peer deals. So, you know, people effectively merging rather than acquiring and and also more sort of vendor-funded buyout type activity, which, which, you know, where the vendor effectively funds their own exit over a period of time. Yeah, so that's where it's basically a competitor just buying your buying up your clients. They're not buying any additional value. They're just going, hey, look, here's a, a quick and easy way to acquire a whole lot of uh, extra clients. They're not buying. There's no strategic focus other than land grab. Well, there might even be a strategic focus, but fundamentally, yeah. the deal has to be one that effectively they can fund off their own balance sheet. So yeah. it's it's kind of that situation where you put two businesses together and. And they will, that will hopefully create some debt capacity and that debt capacity will fund a, a chunk of cash and then everything else will be done on vendor loan notes. That, that, and, and, you know, that, there's a lot of that that goes on in the market. I, I, think, I think the distinction comes with, you know, where does the money come from? And, and, and with large acquirers, it's obviously sort of usually coming off balance sheet. But with a lot of businesses now, the, the acquirer is either a private equity fund or it's private equity invested in the first place. So you've got platform buy and build and 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 you know the question is will the investor see the value in it as much as does the company see the value in it yeah so it's it's just i i mean i think it's just become more difficult for those smaller businesses to to exit um they just need to get a bit bigger and then exit (laughs) yeah well well that's good advice and and sound advice because you know i've heard a stat that you know in that lower end of the market like only 40 percent of businesses that go to market actually get sold so, yeah, that's quite scary. And, and it's a good focus piece for business owners who are out there thinking, hey, look, I want to do something in the next three to five years that you've really got to crank it up. You've, you've got to do what you can to crank it up, tidy up your financials, you know, get a history of growing financials, which you know, suggests that you know, there's growth in your business, in your sector, in your segment, um, you know, which is attractive to an acquirer. And- yeah. I, I, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just a that growing businesses get more money but there, but there is a kind of bit of a magic there is a bit of magic about the million pound EBITDA number at the moment and, and I think um, and I, you know probably that number is only going one way as well in terms of where does the magic number sit um, it, it, it's it's tough and, and as I say there will be exceptions so you know we, we've we've sold are selling indeed you know software businesses that are sub five million revenues and, and well sub a million EBITDA for some phenomenal multiples but that's because they're software businesses they're very leverageable they're very scalable and they're growing very quickly so there's exceptions to every rule um but but you know for for kind of a a, a stable but not very exciting sub five million business it's not an easy M&A market 
Yeah. Okay. So we've got a business who's ready for, for exit. They're thinking about exit. They're, they've done all the preparation and they're now thinking, oh, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to pull the trigger, but what if my staff find out or what if the market find out? What, what's your experience around how to handle those thoughts? I, I don't think there's a vendor alive who isn't worried about leaking, you know, and, and the market finding out that they're for sale. And, 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 and I suppose the first thing I'd say is there's, there's no shame in being for sale anymore. I think, I think it used to be something that was associated with distress or, or retirement or whereas now, you know, there are businesses that, that, that literally only exist to be sold and, and, and people will test the market. And if they don't get the right answer, they'll carry on. And, and so I think the market is more sophisticated about businesses testing the market and it doesn't necessarily cause them alarm however you know our our raison d'etre as, as advisors is to ensure that 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 the fact of the process is is a secret and that any information shared in the process is kept confidential and and there's a number of ways of doing that I had a conversation with somebody this morning actually the, the, the frankly the biggest thing to do is is not to tell anybody that you don't have to tell. So internally, um, only bring people into that um, knowledge loop if if they are either um, significant shareholders and really have to know because they probably have to sign my letter of engagement. Um, but 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 also um, if they're going to need to be materially involved in the process. So usually you you need at least three or four people who are aware because they'll have to produce financial information. They'll have to answer questions. They'll have to you know submit to management presentations and all the rest of it so so there will be a core of people that need to know but but they should be they should be briefed to to keep it as as, as quiet as they possibly can and yeah. and then and then in terms of um sharing confidential information i think you know obviously there's ndas um you can you can strengthen ndas in specific particularly commercially sensitive scenarios by only allowing data to go to certain people on the board for example you can um, you can go into an investor rather than directly to the company if you're particularly concerned about information um, leakage. Um, and, and, and I think what's really important is that usually when you're engaging in an M&A process, you're not engaging with the operational staff, if you like. You're engaging with an M&A team or the CFO or, um, or, or, a, or even an overseas board if it's a UK company. So, so, so it is mitigated. If there is real commercial risk, then I would always say do not share commercially sensitive information at all until you're absolutely certain that you're going to get a deal done, i.e. that you've, you've covered up all the other risks before you introduce that one. Um, and then if, if it does get out into the market, um, my genuine advice to vendors is, is if somebody comes to you, knocks on the door, said, I just bumped into somebody at an exhibition and they said we were sale. I just lie. I say, you know, that's nonsense. We're not. Um, and 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 the reason for saying that is there is nothing to be gained by telling the truth for anybody involved. It doesn't make the person who heard the rumor feel any better about it. And um, you're protecting your business by not disclosing it until you're in a position to say to the team, "Yes, we are selling. Here's who we're selling to you. This is this is their strategy. This is what it means for you." So great advice there around. Keeping things confidential, just minimising the, the sort of people that you um, uh, inform or, or know about the deal and, and the tighter that circle, the best you can. And sometimes if, if questions do ask you, you sort of distract or don't answer directly. 
um, you dismiss it and, and move on. Um, and when the timing's right, you, you, you share the information with the right people. And when the, when the things are a lot more secure and you know exactly what's happening. Exactly right. I love those tips. Okay, so there, there must be some situations when when a deal just can't be completed for whatever reason. You know, something goes wrong or, or goes right, or I guess there's good and bad reasons why the deal's not completed. Uh, yeah. What's your experience around that? Uh, well, the first thing to say is that once you get to heads of terms and into diligence, it's relatively unusual for a deal not to complete. It, it does have to be something fairly significant for it not to be able to be solved by you know changing price or structure or or giving indemnities or or, so, or some other way of, of addressing the problem it, it, it it's you know by that point everyone's pretty emotionally invested in getting a deal done and it's usually possible to work through it um the biggest the biggest issues with deals tend to be with trading so you know either either there's a you know a significant you know let's say there's COVID or there's Brexit or, you know, there's uncertainty that, that means that the forecast may or may not be achieved. That, that, and, and then people wait and wait and wait. And sometimes the waiting goes on so long that it just kind of peters out to nothing. Um, or you've put a forecast in place and, and for whatever reason, you're consistently not meeting them. And there's no, there's no valid explanation that, that, a buyer will accept so it you know so there's always nobody ever gets their forecast right it's impossible so so there's always you know the slippage almost inevitably there's slippage because you know the fact of a process inevitably means that management's time is divided between running the business and the process so it's not surprising that you know contracts go to, out to the right or or there's a little bit of slippage but if it can't be explained away as a timing difference, if there's something more fundamental, that is going to cause a problem in the process. Um, and it isn't necessarily just going to change the price because if you've presented a growing business that was about to land this, 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 which is why you've generated the interest, if that doesn't come to pass, then then that's... Um, that's going to be an issue. I, th I think the only other... I mean, there's lots of things that come out of... Um, you know, badly implemented EMI schemes. We were just talking about it, it, the, um, you know, something that comes out of HR due diligence, a, a, a piece of technology that needs sorting out. All of those things can usually be addressed through the process. Um, and, and so the things that go wrong are around, you know, big differences between what you've presented and what they actually find in diligence um, or lost, a loss of trust. So, you know, if, if, if questions just can't be answered, if things just don't stack up, if it turns out that there's, you know, customer relationships in, in diligence which, which aren't as good as they were presented, if, if, if the intellectual property, when you kind of start digging into it, isn't as robust as it was, for, all of those things, you know, A, they undermine the value that you've presented and therefore does the buyer still want it, but they also undermine trust. Yeah. So those are the things that tend to go wrong. So if things aren't what they seem or if things aren't. Yeah, I always say to people, there is absolutely no point putting something in your information memorandum that isn't true. You might get a really great offer, but you won't complete a really great deal. So, you know, the thing to do is to present the truth as positively as you can, not not to present something yeah. that isn't true. So, so, so from that, you've, you've, you've led me to two things. One is we're going back to that management team that needs to be able to keep their eye on the ball and keep running the business. So does that mean that we, you know, there's benefit in having some sort of dedicated advisor 
um, or resource available you know, throughout the, the, the process so that the, the business doesn't take its eyes off the ball, can keep the business running and fulfilling those plans and projections that they, they had in place while someone is available to do all of the work you know, required to complete the, the due diligence and, the, and just the transaction preparation and process. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it, I think you, what you need is you need internal resource, whether that's a, a trusted, you know, experienced PA who can, you know, find data and package it up and send it into a data room. You need a decent financial capability within the business. And, and that might mean, you know, we regularly, fairly regularly suggest that people appoint an interim, you know, before it to help with preparing for the process and then to help through the process. Um Interim, an interim finance guy of some sort um, and, and your advisors will do a lot of the grunt work in terms of you know taking data and turning it into what it needs to look like and presenting it and supporting management presentations and project management and all that 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 is part of the role of, an, of a good advisor however at the end of the day it's the management team that have the really deep understanding of the business and of its potential it's the management team, particularly if you're talking to private equity, that they will want to build a relationship with because private equity invest in management teams fundamentally. Um, so you can you can and should really think about how you can take as much as possible away from that management team. But fundamentally, there will still be a significant time and effort commitment by them okay. um, just because they're the ones that really have the deep knowledge. Yeah. Um, and it's then, difficult. It's difficult to mitigate that completely. Yeah. Okay. And what about the influence of some sort of competitive tension in the process to uh, well keep that momentum going and uh, other influences? Yeah. Well, it, it, and, and the answer is it is the single it is the single biggest influencer of good outcomes is is the answer. So if if you can if if you can generate a competitive you know an auction I suppose in unsophisticated terms if you can if you can get two or three bidders who really want the asset, then, then that does two things, two really great things in terms of, in terms of the, the vendor's position. First of all, it, it, allows you to, it allows you to push harder on price without the fear that you're gonna lose the one bidder you've got. So if you've got a single bidder, you can, you can push, but really at the end of the day, your only option if you can't get them, get their price up is, is to accept it or walk away. That you've kind of got a binary choice. <clears throat> if you've got, if you've genuinely got more than one party, that gives you almost gives you the confidence to push a lot harder. So you do tend to get to a better place. Um, I mean, you can pretend, and I would always pretend I had an underbidder, even if I didn't, because, but, but, but you know, your confidence in that narrative is is just better if it's true. Um, the other thing that it does is is gives you control over the timetable and the process and allows you to maintain that momentum that we were talking about at the beginning. So, you know, if you've got one bidder and they've signed exclusivity and they decide that they're going to go off and do something in, I don't know, Ulaanbaatar, which is more important to them at the moment, could you just wait there for a minute while we do that and we'll be back? Again, you've really got nowhere to go. If you've got an underbidder, you can go, well, that's very nice. You go and do your more important thing over there. We're going to swap horses now. We're going to go with these guys. And so it allows you to drive process much more efficiently and much harder. Yeah. Okay. So always good to have two buyers. Um, at, least. Or at least two. Mm. 
And and so what about in terms of buyer? Is there any benefit in going down the route of, of, a, of a trade buyer or private equity? You know, is, is one more preferential to the other? Is, is Do you need to set your business up in, in anticipation? No, I mean, I, th- I think we've already kind of referenced the thing that, that, that you absolutely have to have to do a private equity deal, and that is, is some kind of strategic leadership team within a business. And there needs to be a management team for them to invest in, and that management team needs to have some needs to have some ambition, it needs to have some drive, it needs to want to take the business forward, which is different to just an operational management team, which can keep the wheels on. So so that's the most important thing. Other, other than that, I mean, it, 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 it kind of depends. It used to be true that you know, a trade buyer would almost always pay more than private equity, but, but private equity um, have got so much capital to deploy at the moment and, and, and know that they're competing with trade in most processes that they go into, that that's no longer true. So actually, in, you know, it, it's become far more normal that private equity outbid trade in the processes we run than, than the other way around. Trade tend to be a bit more cautious with their multiples. And, and that's, you know, to some extent, I hope no, no private equity watch this, but, you know, to some extent, there's a little bit of arrogance in that. It's, you know, this is a great platform with a great management team. You know, we think we can, we can you know, polish it to a high sheen and, and bring some acquisitions to it and we can turn it from this to that. Um, and, and we can make a really great return on our investment, whereas trade will look at it through a different lens. Yeah. So, so it, 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 it depends. I mean, for some businesses, without that kind of growth profile, without a truly great management team, you'd probably have to go to trade and, and hope that you'll get a decent synergistic deal. The best situation to be in is a business that would attract trade and private equity bids and to run a process which goes to both. And that's most normally what we do now is what we call a dual track process. Um, and, and you kind of go and you see what comes back and you decide what you like best. And and, and that's the route you go down. Well, that's got to be the best way to absolutely leave no doubt at all in, in the founders, the owner's mindset, if, if they're maximizing, you know, what they can you know, achieve with or realize with their business. Yeah, and the other interesting thing from a vendor's perspective rather than a management team's perspective is that private equity are all about deploying funds. So if they've decided that a business is worth, I don't know, £20 million, they'll be pretty relaxed about giving most of that £20 million to the vendor in cash because, you know, there's nothing for them to gain in terms of um, deferring consideration or earning out consideration. Usually you'll get your money on the nail with private equity. Um, I mean, management will have to roll some, obviously, because they want to know that they're they're still invested. But but exiting vendors, private equity is pretty good result actually, because you get most of your cash on day one, mm. if not all of it. So clearly, we're just skimming the surface of your knowledge here and, and experience <laughs> here, and uh, there, there's so much more to offer. And and look, Wendy, you've covered a stack of ground there today, and uh, so. For, for, for the listeners out there and, and you know a lot of those are business owners who are, who are you know coming up to you know their, their exit planning and and thinking about it you know in in the near near future what's the top tip you'd love them to hear from from you um, from this message that the, there is advantage to be gained by thinking about your value drivers and your positioning in the market I know two to three years before you actually want to exit there's a whole lot of tidying up and, and sorting out and preparation that you can do in the six months before you go to market. But, but, but the, 
those that think about it earlier and think about you know the the the, the kind of value drivers and detractors in their business and 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 where the market's likely to be at the point of their exit then they do better because because you know that you can you can tick more boxes and and to some extent it's a box ticking exercise it sounds really stupid but you know if you're this size if you've got growth of this percentage if you've got EBITDA margins of this percentage you know this is all stuff that the market pretty universally uses as proxies for quality um, and and so and it's stuff you can influence. You know, you can stop doing low margin stuff for a bit. You know, sometimes less revenue at a higher margin is worth more than more revenue with a load of low margin stuff in it. So it's certainly worth getting somebody or, or, or even just getting your board to really think about those aspects early enough to do something about them. Brilliant. And if people want to find out more, um, how do they get in touch with you? Oh, well, I'd be very happy to talk to them. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Wendy Hart um, and Grant Thornton. And, um, and yeah, I don't know. How, how will they get in touch with me? I have, I have all forms of contact available. So when, Wendy Hart on LinkedIn, um, corporate finance partner at Grant Thornton here in the Thames Valley. Yeah, very happy to talk to anybody. And if anyone needs to, uh, yeah, if they can't find it that way, then come through me. I'm more than happy.